The portion of this interview starting at 35 minutes and 30 seconds discusses some topics that may be emotionally challenging for some listeners. Welcome back to episode number 10 on the wealth of self. This is an exciting milestone for the podcast, and it helps that we have a wonderful guest who has an incredibly inspirational message to help make this episode even more special. Tonight, I'm joined by Tash Durkins, who is a senior executive leader with the Federal Aviation Administration and a soon-to-be author finalizing her book on how to be fiercely joyful. Despite her joyous demeanor and great career achievements, Tash didn't begin her life this way. Her journey to radical self-acceptance, comfort with vulnerability, and speaking her truth were tasks that took consistency, diligent work, and healthy mentorship in order to achieve. Tash was blessed from an early age with these great mentors, namely her parents, who were vocal civil rights advocates in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Despite this, she found herself in a strange position of trying to fit in, in a town where the majority of her peers were white and didn't necessarily accept her into their social circles, and her black peers teased her for acting white. This created a sense of isolation and an inability to fit in that proved to be yet another obstacle she would have to overcome on her journey to wealth down the road. She distinctly remembers her father's mayoral campaign and his surprise support from the one and only Muhammad Ali. And even though her dad lost his bid at office, she always remembers his lesson of humility and learning from defeat and his view of the outcome as a win for all who were able to hear his message about equality. Just as soon as Tash began her college experience at Howard University, she had to pause in order to help her mom with her terminal illness, which later claimed her mother's life, but always remembers the immense outpouring of love, support, and impact that her mom had as she watched friends, families, and loved ones pour into her mother's appreciation ceremony. This event showed Tash that she wanted to affect others' lives positively, just as her mother had done. Through many more obstacles of self-acceptance, overcoming limiting beliefs, and personal realizations, Tash has made a name for herself that she is immensely proud of and shares some of her most vital lessons that she has utilized to achieve this growth during our conversation today. I'm very honored to have her as a guest on the podcast and hopeful that any viewers or listeners will be able to take away some actionable steps for growth and wealth in their own lives. Thanks for tuning in to The Wealth of Self.
All right, welcome back from the intro. This is episode 10 on The Wealth of Self, and I'm honored again to have another connection from, you guessed it, Phil Green. So this is Tash Durkin. She is in the studio, and we're going to be speaking about her life, her journey, and hopefully toward the end we'll get into her authorship because uh, she is preparing to write a book, Fearlessly Joyful, which uh, when will that be out for people It'll listening? It'll be out in September. Oh my gosh. 2023. I can't wait. (laughs) So this is right around the corner, but I wanted to turn it over to you and, um, and just dive in on this conversation before all of these conversations, we do a little review on certain questions and sort of topics that we can hit on. And as you were rolling through some of those, I was just like, I you know, I hear that. I hear that. So there are two in particular that I'm really excited about, but Welcome to the studio, and uh, go ahead and just introduce yourself to the listeners. Okay. Well, thank you so much for having me, John. This is super exciting for me. Glad to be with you and absolutely love the concept of wealth of self. Thank you. Um, Just fantastic concept, and it really resonates with me. I am a girl from Scranton, Pennsylvania, (laughs) Mm -hmm. who uh, grew up there, raised, uh, born and raised, Mm -hmm. and then moved here to the D.C. area to go to college Mm -hmm. um, at Howard University at first. Very nice. Um, Fantastic experience. Mm Love the HBCU experience. Um, And but but between um, getting here. Being from Scranton, Pennsylvania, moving to a big city, mm-hmm. having no idea what I was getting myself into, <laughs> and then some challenges that followed um, after shortly after I got here. Yeah. Um, it really shaped me in a lot of ways into the the woman I've become today, mm-hmm. and I'm you know now an executive uh, working for the federal government. Mm-hmm. Love my job, um, and I'm embracing an opportunity to share with people personally and professionally some of the things I've learned Mm -hmm. um, that helped me be incredibly grateful and incredibly satisfied and fulfilled in my life. Yes, ma'am. And the title of your book, um, I I couldn't think of a better one just based off of knowing you very shortly, but joyful is one of the very first words that comes to mind. Uh, You have that persona about you. you, And I think people after watching and listening to this will feel that as well. And certainly after that book is released in September, they will 100% understand it at that point. (laughs) I hope so. I, I wanted to trace it back to the origin. So you talk about Scranton, Pennsylvania, which for most viewers, the first thing that's going to pop into their head is probably The Office, right? And uh, Michael Scott and Jim Halpert and all these people, uh, but also the current president of the United States, Joe Biden. And so when it comes to what the public may see or perceive of Scranton and what your experiences were there, what kind of things would you highlight for somebody who's never visited or doesn't know anything about Scranton? Well, certainly a small town feel. Um, mm-hmm. It's not a tiny town, but it's a small town. And uh, I, I was one of a very small community of people of color, mm-hmm. predominantly white neighborhood. Uh, we had a lot of folks at the time, I think the demographic has changed a bit, but at the time there were a lot of folks that had Italian heritage. So man, some of the best food ever, Italian food oh, ever. Nice. In we had a big Italian festival every summer. It was yeah. awesome. You wouldn't think uh, about that in small town you America wouldn't. usually. It's uh, really yeah. unusual, right? That is nice. And then the, there was Amish town very close nearby us too. So we had very diverse kind of group of folks around. Yeah. But um, that experience was was challenging, though, for me, because 
I didn't feel like I fit in anywhere. Mm -hmm. Uh, My parents were civil rights activists and uh, they really honed in on us being proud of being black. Mm -hmm. Um, And we studied history. We literally, John, had to give a black history um, summary every day before dinner, before we could eat. Wow. So, you know, we learned our history. Yeah. A very <laughs> deep education and appreciation <laughs> yes. of the culture. Yeah. <laughs> and even things as simple as the, uh, popular black magazines at the time, Jet mm-hmm. Magazine, Ebony Magazine, Black Enterprise. We had the largest collection of those magazines in the state of Pennsylvania oh, yeah. for a while. Wow. Because <laughs> my dad collected them. Yeah. So there was that kind of world. And then I went to school with kids that pretty much didn't look like me at all mm-hmm. um, and weren't, you know, sitting at home studying black history all the yeah. time like us and um, just came from a very different world. Mm-hmm. And I I didn't feel like I fit in there. And the kids that did look like me tended Mm -hmm. to to see me as what people say is acting white. Right. So I eventually um, started doing things to try and get get their attention, try to fit in with them, fit in with the white kids at school. And Mm -hmm. it just nothing ever worked. I tried to glob onto my brothers. They were much more popular. That didn't work either. Yeah. So anyway, it it was a challenging time and it became sort of the basis for why I ended up going to an HBCU. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like you were really in the middle ground, which is a tough place to be because you find yourself in between these cliques or niches, if you will. And you you feel like I think probably you didn't have a place to go. Um, And one of the things we hit on before we started our conversation is you started to sort of look for other ways to sort of identify and create that persona for yourself because it wasn't necessarily available from the people that you were interacting with at school or other friend groups that you were a part of. So tell me a little bit about how you coped with that and and what sort of things you started to maybe attach yourself to. Sure, sure. The the easiest way for me was... um, you know, how I dressed and, Mm -hmm. you know, how I showed up. Yes. So, you know, back then I'm giving away my age, but everybody wanted guest jeans so bad, myself Mm -hmm. included. Yep. And, um, I couldn't get them for two reasons, really. One, they didn't fit. Mm -hmm. I was very tall and had a large frame. So everything looked like high waters on me. It was a situation. Nobody let me forget it. (laughs) And, um, and my parents really wouldn't pay for brand name things. Right. My dad thought it was just a waste of money, mm-hmm. you know. So he, instead, we are clothes shopping for school every year. We went to New York City mm-hmm. and went to the wholesale district. Yeah. And my dad would buy, you know, half dozen or a dozen of the same thing, different yeah. colors. <laughs> and we were good to go. And I used to say I would get Ike shoes instead of Nikes yeah. because um, dad wasn't trying to part with the Nike money. I'm resonating with him more and more. I feel like everything I own is some shade of gray or black. And I've got three of each of them or something. Ah. (laughs) But yeah, so it it just, you know, I focused on trying. And the other thing I did is, again, fighting my, even my physical body. When my shoe size changed from a nine, because I'm in middle school, a girl wearing a size nine went Mm -hmm. to a 10. Yep. I refused to tell anybody. Mm. And I kept wearing size nine shoes. And this is why my feet are a situation today. And I had to get yeah. bunionectomy mm-hmm. because I tore my feet up. 
That's yeah. how bad it was. I was trying to fit in and I didn't want anybody to know how big my feet were. Yeah. Well, you look at like traditional or old traditional Asian culture with mm -hmm. things like foot binding, right? Yes. Because the small foot was desirable and it just caused like crippling issues with uh, gait and, and foot step, uh, mm -hmm. your ability to step or roll your foot. Um, so yeah, it's horrible. Yes, it's terrible, yeah. but, but not having a, f a firm fitting pair of shoes can be like detrimental mm -hmm. in, in a lot of ways. But, um, yeah, I think for my generation, it was the Hollister and the Abercrombie, like we talked about. Mm -hmm. And I look back at some of the stuff I bought and the stuff I wore and I was like, what the heck? It's just like <laughs> torn to shreds, looks ridiculous, has logos galore all over it. And, uh, I couldn't be further from that now. I try and stay pretty. Let's monotone see. monotone which, now <laughs> yeah it's maybe not the best way it doesn't show outwardly my uh character or mm. artistic side as much but it keeps my wardrobe very consistent day to day i don't have to think very much about it it's so. interesting i'm gravitating towards that now because um it's about simplifying at this stage in my life yeah. and i talk about this even in the book but having some sort of routine and creating mm -hmm. ways to not have to to exert so much energy making decisions. Exactly. So that probably works for you, yes. right? It's like a minimalistic approach. And, mm -hmm. and uh, you think about the um, the two people that come to mind, well, the one individual that comes to mind is Steve Jobs. Of course, yes. And so he's got the blue jeans and mm -hmm. the black tee and that, or maybe even turtleneck, some mm -hmm. some variation of a black top. Black and top. it's just, that's, that's it. it. That's what mm -hmm. That's what the wardrobe is, top to bottom. But when you when you look at your evolution through your schooling period you start to um, navigate through some interesting life events and you talked about how you know your dad was an individual who was self-employed and at a certain point uh went for you know the political side of things ran for mayor in scranton yeah. so what, what kind of job did your parents hold and uh, how did that sort of push him in particular toward this sort of political movement? Well, it's quite interesting because my dad, when he moved to Scranton, because my mother was, was raised there. Mm -hmm. uh, my dad was from North Carolina. When he moved to Scranton, he was soon after selected for a job as I think it was the his title was the director of the housing authority, mm. which was focused on um, equal opportunity housing in Scranton. And, excuse me, that exposed him to some of the things that uh, he just didn't recognize were an issue, you mm -hmm. know, in terms of people of color not having equal access to some things or struggling in ways that he just didn't realize. Mm -hmm. um, so that was <laughs> one of the few jobs he had uh, where he worked for someone else, I'll say, cause, yeah. because he was self-employed for so long. But then he uh, he opened up his business, Craig and Craig Enterprises, and my dad was one of those people. I, I could never do it. I I wish I could. He he could focus on whatever business stream of income worked. Mm -hmm. You know where the the money could be made. I have to love what I'm doing. You and me are just alike, right there. <laughs> it's like so just hard to do separate. It. Yes, I cannot. You know, he would get so irritated with me sometimes because he tried to talk me into different businesses. But he, mm -hmm. he started buying out because at that time in Scranton, a lot of businesses were shutting down. Mm. So he would buy out uh, restaurants. What was the reason for that? It was the economy changing. Okay. Um, and a lot of people were leaving the city mm -hmm. at that time. And this was kind of when we were starting to transition to the electric 
focus after all the years of the coal mining right. and the train, the railroad mm-hmm. stopped and all of those things. Is that an industry there in Scranton that a lot of people yes, are attached to? Oh, it is. Interesting. And it was um, back then, they said because of the, um, they, they even went into the coal mines and when they couldn't find any more coal, coal they started digging it under houses and oh. it was really bad, yeah, really bad no- situation. And so my um, recollection when I lived there, at that time, they used to say that Scranton had the highest uh, cancer rate in the country. Mm. And everybody I knew had cancer. So it was part of the reason why I could wait to leave, you know. Yeah. But so my dad took advantage of the businesses closing down. Mm-hmm. He'd buy out restaurants, hotels, stores, whatever it was, yeah. and would resell the equipment, the furniture, right. you know, the coolers from the store, mm-hmm. the stove from the restaurant. Um, the shelving, my gosh, you would be surprised how much money you can get for the shelving. Yeah, wow. <laughs> so, so yeah, he would just resell all that and he'd make very good money doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, the part me and my brothers didn't like is we had to clean everything. <laughs> so it was so we our had a job. small workforce already built in. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that was our job. We yeah. all started working at 13, but, um, but yeah, it was it became a very good income um, for for my parents and my mom also worked in the business mm-hmm. um, at that time. Eventually, um, some years later, they divorced. Mm-hmm. Things changed quite substantially, but uh, substantially, but for a time, yeah, we were you know really in good shape. And then he decided as he started meeting more and more people um, that he wanted to take a stand. And, mm-hmm. and try to influence change another way. Mm-hmm. And that's when he decided to run for mayor. Yeah, that's fascinating. And so that was maybe more intimately connected at the time than you realized to his civil rights roots mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Um, and what about mom? What was she involved in as far as employment is concerned? She, she worked at the business, mm-hmm. um, the Crane Craig Enterprise business, doing that for a long time. Yeah. Um, after my parents separated, it was really tough because that was the only job she ever really had outside of one outside of high school. Right. Um, and so she had to go work, uh, and do janitorial work Mm -hmm. in the Jewish, uh, nursing home Mm -hmm. up the street from us. Yeah. We had a big Jewish community too. And, um, I, I went too. um, by this time I was 16 and I was when you could start working in Scranton. Yep. Um, and so we both had a job there, and that was how we tried to make ends meet. My brother had a job, too, part-time, and he was playing sports, so he couldn't work quite as much. Right. But, yeah, so that was it. Um, she did not have a college education, mm-hmm. um, high school educated. And so that was the extent of you know her professional career right. until, thank goodness, she landed a job at the University of Scranton. That's awesome. So that awesome. that kind of changed things and gave us some brighter days. Yeah. Well, you talk about your dad's sort of political aspirations at this time. And unfortunately, this resulted in a loss. And yeah. I, I would like you to talk about that because, and we didn't go into this earlier, but my mom, uh, she was a teacher for 33 years, oh, literature, wonderful. English, wonderful, wonderful career that she had and wow. influenced a lot of people. Um, I believe that truly. Uh, But also 
had political aspirations and ran for U.S. Congress. Oh. Lost badly. (laughs) But put her heart into it, a heart and soul. And I I remember at that time, I was 13 or 14, and I just, I didn't get it. Mm -hmm. I don't think. I was involved in sports in school, and I was kind of like, why is this, you know, why are you putting so much energy into this? Mm -hmm. And I just didn't see the bigger picture at that time. And now working with photo and video, I'm like, oh, man, I wish I would have been at this stage when she was right. doing that because I could have helped so much. But I think that we have a little bit of a similarity there with a parent who wanted to do big things in mm-hmm. office and fell short. Mm-hmm. So I'd love to hear that story from your perspective and, and how your dad made that a teachable lesson for you. He, t- he totally did. Um, you know, I was eight years old when he decided to run for mayor. Mm-hmm of Scranton. And in my mind, it was a totally achievable goal. <laughs> he's your hero, right? <laughs> exactly. He's not going to lose. Of course yeah. he's going to win. You know, it's just a given. Um, and, and it was a pretty fantastic campaign. Mm-hmm. My dad recognized that he needed uh, some help and uh, some attention. So suddenly one day we're in the car, the whole family driving to Allentown, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And my dad just knocked on Muhammad Ali's door. <laughs> Which is like, the who Muhammad does that? Ali. <laughs> Muhammad oh Ali's door, just not unannounced, you know, there was no connection, no nothing. And a few minutes later, we were all inside the house. And uh, first of all, I don't even know how he knew. I guess everybody probably knew where Ali lived. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, we were in the house. We were there for hours and hours that first visit. Yeah. And Ali was doing magic tricks for us, which was so cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and he did uh, come up to Scranton and campaign with my dad. Yeah. So there's like cool pictures in the newspaper of Ali and my dad. The police were kind of surrounding them as they're walking through the city and campaigning. And mm-hmm. there's one where he's holding me next to my brother and my mom and dad, which is so cool. And um, you got to get that framed. Somehow. Yes, <laughs> I do. I have to. I keep looking. It's so cool. It's such a cool You share cool the picture. file with me and I can print it right over there. I'll oh, get it yeah? yeah. Okay. <laughs> but it is just, it was such an amazing thing. Such a fantastic experience. Mm-hmm. And then um, election day and my dad lost. And I'm like literally devastated, John. I could not believe it because I was convinced he would win. He wasn't upset at all, though. Mm -hmm. I was like, well, you know, why aren't you upset, Dad? (laughs) He said, darling, we actually won. We didn't lose. We won. And I'm so confused. And he essentially told me that now people have heard us and they know what we stand for. Absolutely. And I was like, oh, okay. So I can feel good, you know, about this because now... People know what's important to us. And he was so, he was thrilled. I mean, he was thrilled. He only got a thousand votes and his competitor got like 15,000. Yeah. Yeah. So kind of like your mom situation perhaps, Mm but um, it was still just a motivating experience for me because it also taught me, um, you know, even if you know, you might not have success in the traditional, um, perspective of of what people are expecting for the outcome you can still win you can still benefit you can still help others right and i would guess i don't know but i would guess too that he inspired particularly some people of color i don't think you have to guess you know who felt like 
we can't do this. We can't do that. We can't run for office. We can't, you know, I'm sure he inspired people. Yeah. A hundred percent. And it sounds like that lesson in and of itself has been a thread of motivation for you yes. in your own pursuit of self-discovery and pursuing your own goals, despite maybe feeling like you didn't belong or, or, or couldn't get there. Um, sort of like a self-limiting belief mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Um, but an- another instance that you talk about in your, uh, your submission was you talked about your mom's illness mm-hmm. and how as that progressed and you moved into a period of celebration and remembrance of her life that, uh, there was a very immense outpouring of love from that community, and you were you were uh, taken aback by that. But it showed you that your mom was deeply loved and admired by a lot of people. And I I have a similar. Uh, it's unfortunate uh, because our our moms are no longer with us. Oh, but um, it's similar, you know. So Gosh. I'd love to hear this element of your story as well. Absolutely, um, my absolutely. My mom was my best friend. So really tough, mm-hmm. you know, when she was sick and I, um, ended up dropping out of Howard because I went back home to take care of mom. Yeah. And, um, she got better after some surgeries and, um, radiation chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. So I went back to school and then I got the call that she was terminal. So I went back home. Um, and my mom was amazing about, kind of trying to ensure I was, I was informed and I had to make as few decisions as possible when she passed away. Mm -hmm. So she called a family meeting, you know, we all got together. She told us everything that she wanted, what her wishes were. And it was clear. And, um, we were just very transparent talking about these things. And so one night we're sitting in, in the house, um, apartment, and she said, I wonder who's going to come to my funeral. And so I start, you know, kind of naming names. I'm like, it's probably going to be a lot of people, <laughs> you know, which is kind of going through a list. Yeah. And then suddenly I'm talking with other family members and friends. And we said, you know what? This is one of those situations where you give your loved one their, their roses while they can still smell them. Mm-hmm. So we decided to have an appreciation ceremony for her at the church. Yeah. And John, that night, the church was full. It was standing room only, um, you know, in the, the church, in the balcony, and there were people outside. Yeah. And those who couldn't make it, they sent videos, mm-hmm. <laughs> which I think were VHS tapes. That's special, time. yeah. But wow. there was some, they sent videotapes, and there were some cassette tapes, I feel like, where we just heard voices but I mean, I just couldn't believe that my mom had touched so many people. I yeah. knew people loved her, but I didn't, I didn't know until that moment how yeah. much, you know? So I just remember in that moment thinking, I want to impact people just a fraction of the way my mom has. Yep. If I can do that, I think I'll have been a good person in this world. Absolutely. And such a role model to follow. Like uh, I mentioned, I think about mom mm-hmm. as a teacher and the yeah, lives of young people amazing. that she influenced. And when we had a celebration of life for her, um, it was just really special to see those individuals come mm-hmm. out. Those were people both who had had her as a teacher, but also people that she affected whenever she was doing advocacy work for teachers, uh-huh. both in the classroom and retired uh, with other organizations in the state of Missouri. Mm-hmm. And um, 
you know, I, ha I have to reflect on that at times because, you know, as a teacher, they don't get the respect that no, they deserve in this country. And it's extremely sad all. and they're not paid Correct. enough for the stuff that they have to prepare for and deal with in the mm -hmm. classroom setting. And I find that uh, devastating on so many levels because it is the foundation of the future of our country to have a good um, and what I believe should be a public education system uh, that gives equal opportunities to everybody regardless of where you live or where you come from. Um, but to know that the people who are there came out and supported in that way, I feel you exactly where you're like, wow, yeah. that is special. I'm and, so glad um, you got to experience that. Yes. Yeah, it was an extraordinarily special moment. But I, I wanted to segue a little bit as you now have returned to Howard University and you start to sort of navigate into a career path because as of now, you're with the Federal Aviation Administration. Um, and as we spoke about, there's a lot of catch up that you're playing to keep up with the advancements in the field of aerial technology and unmanned aerial vehicles and all these things. But as you were navigating that end of your college career, where was your mind at that time and how were you anticipating taking those next steps? John, it was, it was really tough. Uh, I could not afford right away to go back to school mm -hmm. and Howard was too expensive when I finally did go back, which, you know, saddens me that I couldn't go back to Howard and graduate, but I just couldn't afford it. I ended up graduating from George Mason. Mm. Um, but in the meantime, and, and when I first got back, I suffered incredible depression because I just, you know, I literally talked to my mom at least twice a day. Yeah. You know, and literally she really was my best friend and I just didn't know how to be without her. Yeah. Um, and so I, I literally just, I was so depressed. I would sleep all day and stay up all night watching the home shopping network and ordering things, <laughs> <laughs> ordering things that I didn't need. Little but retail that was therapy. My therapy right <laughs> oh my gosh. And my brother, you know, I have lots of siblings, but only one brother that I was in the home growing up with my whole, you know, first 18 years of my life. Mm -hmm. And we share the same mom and, uh, for, he was just as depressed too. I mean, it was really rough. Um, and so since I couldn't go back to school, I went and got a job at Roy Rogers and I was working at Roy Rogers and in, in downtown DC in DuPont mm -hmm. circle. And, uh, that was the job that taught me how to treat people mm -hmm. because I was treated so poorly. Yeah. I didn't know people were so dismissive and disrespectful to people in the service industry. Once you work service, Ooh. you understand mm -hmm. how to behave in a restaurant. Yes. I bust tables at Olive Garden. <laughs> um, it was like, oh my goodness, it's important to be nice. Yes. Yeah, very important. Oh my goodness. I just, oh, I couldn't believe it. So yes, I learned how to treat people. And now it, you know, that, that has stayed with me all mm -hmm. these years. Um, but yeah, just getting through that period and working until I was able to go back to school I did get a, a really good job working in telecommunications, but because I didn't have my degree yet, mm -hmm. I was paid a lot less than everyone else. And I had to focus on differentiating myself, right? you know, to, to show that I was adding value to 
you know. So I remember that was something my dad was always really good at, you know, and then that's why people always came to him for business. Mm -hmm. So I adopted some of that, you know, through that process. And, you know, from there, I've had a fantastic uh, um, number of people who have supported my development Mm -hmm. in my growth over the years, many, many, many more fantastic leaders and managers than not. And, uh, now I try to take all those fantastic things I've learned from them and apply that to my team now. Yeah. I'm paying it forward in a way. Mm -hmm. It's a very special thing to do, especially whenever somebody has imparted good wisdom or knowledge on you. It's the least you can do, right? right. It's like, here's <laughs> what I know, take it and run. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And, and I'll say too, one of the things I've learned that I'd like to share with the listeners just to be mindful of, um, I was, I would assume who would be, who was willing to be an advocate for me mm -hmm. rather than just be open to whoever was willing to be right. an advocate, you know? So because I was assuming essentially that it was people that looked like me mm -hmm. or women mainly that would support and advocate for me or be a sponsor at work, I was overlooking some people. Yeah. You know, so I'm so grateful that I learned that right. in time. Uh, and now I take full advantage of everybody who wants to support. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to the Wealth of Self podcast. The audio only version of these stories can be found on nearly every major podcast streaming platform from Spotify to Apple Podcasts and many, many more. Your support as we grow this movement is immensely appreciated. You can help us out by leaving a rating writing a short review, or even sharing it with a friend or a loved one who you feel would benefit from hearing these stories. Finally, if you're interested in seeing the video interview that accompanies these stories, head over to our YouTube channel or our Facebook page for the full viewing experience. While you're there, don't forget to leave a like, subscribe, or follow the channel, and share your thoughts in the comment section. For additional information on how to support the wealth of self, head over to www wealthofself.com. Now, let's get back to the interview. Well, as we navigate into this second portion, you speak about your book and how this is very much an accumulation of lessons that you've picked up throughout the course of your life and understanding events that happened in the past and how you've had to overcome some of those things in order to live more joyously. And I, I have to hit on this. It's a plug for them, not that they need it, but there's a Jonah Hill documentary uh, on Netflix called Stuts, and it's a conversation between Jonah and his therapist. And it's very candid. It sort of breaks the fourth wall. And the thing that I've always most appreciated about that, because it, beyond being really well done and filmed beautifully, the gentleman who is the therapist in this case gives very actionable steps for people who may feel like they're in a rut, they may be depressed, they may not know what their next steps need to be. If you watch that, you will, will be able to step away from it with some some absolute golden nuggets of, of, of information that you could very realistically apply to your own life. And as you near the release of this book and reflect on all the things that went into the creation and the authorship of that, I think listeners would find a wealth of knowledge to take away a few pieces of your own growth with them after listening to this. So as you've become more joyful in your life, what were some of the tools you implemented to get there? 
Well, that's a fantastic question, John. Uh, it's It's been years in the making trying to figure out what those tools should be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'll say that, unfortunately, there's a lot of my childhood that I don't remember. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I realized that um, in my mid-20s, essentially, when suddenly some things I had repressed just literally came back um, out of nowhere. I woke up one morning and remembered things that had happened that I literally just totally, um, totally suppressed in, in my memory. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there were incredibly difficult things. So learning how to cope with challenges has been something I've had to do for years. Uh, I, I re- remembered suddenly that I was molested by my grandfather, um, molested by my babysitter, who, you know, also both of them, you know, I trusted incredibly. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I was raped, you know, by my first boyfriend. All of these things, uh, I I believe that the fear I had, you know, of talking about these things and the fear of facing myself in the mirror because I believed I had caused it all when it happened. I, I was certain that it was my fault. Um, it, when it, when it all came back like a flood, I recognized it was time to acknowledge what I had been through and that I could no longer keep a secret about it. It couldn't be a secret anymore to the people that I loved and I was closest to. I literally called my dad, uh, he was still living at the time and my brothers and I told them we're having a conference call, family conference call. Yeah. And I told them. Uh, what I'd been through. Of course, they were stunned, you know, and, and hurt and upset and angry and, you know, wondering why I never said anything and I tried to explain it. But what I came to recognize as well, John, was that I had been constantly carrying weight on my shoulders as if I couldn't share my burdens. You know, since I was since my mom died when I was 20 years old. And even then I remember when she died, everybody, um, I broke down one time and really cried, not at the church, at the funeral. This was right before the funeral, a couple of days before. And mm-hmm. it was like, I was chastised by my family. You can't break down. We need you to be strong, be strong, right? you know, and I know they meant well. Um, but that was, that was a burden on me. And so I just carried and carried that my shoulders were so heavy. And it was in that moment after those memories came back that I was, I said, no more. I refuse to hold these things inside mm-hmm. and, um, be solely responsible for my well being. I actually need help. Yeah. And so for me, I would, I would offer listeners. One of the very first things is to be willing to acknowledge um, what has happened, whatever trauma you have experienced, that requires vulnerability. Yes, it does. Um, some courage, mm-hmm. um, but I can guarantee you it pays off in the end. Um, that acknowledgement is is the very first thing. And then beyond that, allow yourself to feel whatever you're feeling. Uh, we tend to try and say, I'm okay, though. You know, we'll acknowledge the thing and say, I'm okay. I'll, get, I'll be fine. It's no big deal. Yeah. No, it actually is a big deal. And quite frankly, it's unhealthy if you don't allow yourself the grace to go through it. And it can compound too. 
Absolutely. You let it build and build and build and something's got to break. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. In some area or areas of your life, right? Mm-hmm. So allow yourself to go through um, those emotions, experience them uh, if you need to. And I strongly recommend it. Seek professional help. Yeah. Talk to a counselor. Group therapy is an option. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's so many options out there. So take a look, get online, mm-hmm. see what works best for you. You can even do it virtually these days. Yes. Um, but it helped me to have someone to help me understand what in the world I went through and how it influenced who I was and how yeah. I was showing up. Right. Um, and I'll say lastly on that, I, because I had been hiding things for so long, that became my MO. My right. modus operandi was to hire, or excuse me, to hide mm-hmm. uh, what I was dealing with, how I was feeling, you know, whether I was happy or sad, and you just never really knew, I started getting confused yeah, because I was hiding, hiding, hiding. Um, and that was just so unhealthy. And that began, excuse me, began <clears throat> my personal quest to start living more authentically mm-hmm. because I didn't like how I felt on the inside. Right. So, it, you know, that, that is, um, and I, you know, I talk about some of those things in, in the book, of mm-hmm. course, but that willingness to be vulnerable, John, has been really, I would say it's my brand at work and outside. Yeah. My coworkers sometimes look at me like, oh my God, did she just say that? <laughs> I'm still professional, John. Of course. I'm totally professional, but I will call a thing a thing, you know, um, and I'll do it with care and compassion. There's mm-hmm. a book, Kim Scott wrote the book, Radical Candor, and I mm-hmm. love her philosophy for having tough conversations with care. It's a fantastic um, uh, concept. And I use that, and um, my willingness to be vulnerable has helped me establish incredibly deep relationships, deep and meaningful relationships. Mm-hmm. But more importantly, that that what I saw at my mother's appreciation ceremony, people cared for her that way because she cared for them. Right. And she was vulnerable in doing that. Yeah. She helped rape victims. She did all these things in her spare time. And I have an opportunity, we all do, mm-hmm. to touch people in whatever moment we have with them, whether it's a small single interaction or it becomes a friend for a lifetime or a season, but we all have that opportunity. And so that's what I look for Mm -hmm. to put a smile on the face of the guy who looks angry as all get out, you know, (laughs) or the, 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 you know, there's been people at the grocery store like, Oh my God, I forgot my wallet. I'm like, okay, what are we going to do? I can help you out. You know, um, whatever the case may be, but, um, taking that moment Mm -hmm. to recognize someone could use you, you can be their blessing. Yep. You know, so that is, that's the thing now that comes out of it. Every opportunity I get and that brings me joy. Yeah. And that's such an important lesson. I feel like we all live such fast paced lives. Mm -hmm. It can be easy to, to walk past someone and not acknowledge them or not put a smile on your face or, or do these Little things, Mm -hmm. really little things that can change someone's whole perspective or their whole day. Um, And I think the other lesson out of that is you never know what someone's going through. Exactly. Right. And so I think you have to maybe keep that in the back of your head during interactions that uh, you approach this with kindness. 
you know, be nice. It's a Absolutely. very important elements to introduce into your daily activity or daily interactions with people and they will reciprocate in time mm-hmm. and that appreciation will be passed forward. Um, but w- when you talk about, you know, coming to terms with certain things that happened and how to admit to yourself that it's time to change, it's time to move forward. I think so many people get so rooted that they feel like they cannot take that step. And this can happen in situations that involve trauma. This can happen in situations with people betting on themselves and taking a chance. Maybe that's starting a business or whatever that might look like. That first step is so damn hard. So when you think about passing forward advice to people who may feel like they're stuck right now with a similar situation or a decision of their own, what do you say to them? What can they do actionably? to take that next step? Well, that's, you know, something I have struggled with certainly over the years. Mm -hmm. I have been in the space of uh, creating stories and narratives, you know, about what I couldn't achieve Mm -hmm. and, and, and then therefore didn't make the attempt, you know, I didn't take the step. And I'd say a couple of things. One, first, just ask yourself, what really is the risk? Because mm-hmm. a lot of times it's not that big. It's right. something that you can actually take, you know. Yeah. You've created this narrative in your head <laughs> right. that says it's so big and it's so scary. And yeah. like what's really going to happen if you, right. if you start the business and you get no clients right away or none for months? What can you do differently mm-hmm. is the question. Not, oh, God, why did I do this? I need to fold. <laughs> yeah. No, don't fold. And what I, I keep what keeps resonating with me these days in particular about this this type of topic of, of trying Mm -hmm. your expectation should be that you're going to have failures. Don't go in thinking it's going to be perfect. It ain't y'all It's not going to be perfect. (laughs) And if you think it is, you're going to find out the hard way. Oh my gosh. There are lessons ahead. I tell you right now. You would know, right? You, you know, so it's, it is um, critical that you, you have managed your own expectations. Forget about everybody else, just your own. Yeah. Um, that's kind of how this goes, no matter what the thing is, new career, um, dating, every, there's going to be challenges, right? Um, when you recognize that, um, the, the, the next piece of it is to determine how you're going to cope with mm-hmm. failing forward, you right. know? What does that look like? So how are you going to recover? Yeah. I have a, um, a coach um, through BetterUp, and I, I have all kinds of coaching mm-hmm. opportunities through BetterUp. And one of my other coaches is a well-being habits coach. Mm-hmm. And she um, <laughs> asked me that very question when I was trying to settle on a new routine for myself to try to make sure I could write, to get yeah. my book done. And she said, okay, well, what are you going to do if you miss a day? I was like, I can't, I can't miss a day. Right. <laughs> She's like, um, you're going to, yeah. <laughs> whether you get sick, you work late or what, right. don't get up, you miss the alarm clock, what it? So what you going to do? And I love the advice she gave. She said, make yourself a rule. Um, you won't miss more than two days in a row. Mm-hmm. Oh, 
I could do that. That's and then it's rule. like, you know, brought yeah. me down, gave me some calm because it's like, okay, every, the whole world's not falling apart mm-hmm. and I'm not going to end up not publishing a book because I've just missed, missed a day, yeah. you know? Um, so putting it into perspective, having a plan of what you'll do when it happens, because mm-hmm. it will, um, and giving yourself some grace. Yeah, of course. Right. You just got to give yourself some grace. And what great advice. I mean, when you think about people falling through on a task or a new routine or an activity, just because they miss one, it can feel devastating in that mm-hmm. moment where you're like, oh, well, now got to throw it all out the window. But if you can outline a rule for yourself with that level of grace that says, you know, I missed it here, but we got to pick it up tomorrow. Uh, that's so that's so powerful. I think about my own workout routines right now, which are non-existent and have been for a while. And that's going to help. <laughs> that is going to help. So I appreciate that little piece of advice. Well, I'd, I'll say this one other thing, if you don't mind. Of course. Um, I am, people will look at me. I tend to call myself an unconventional athlete. Mm-hmm. I am a marathoner and a triathlete. Nice. I ran Marine Corps marathon weighing well over 200 pounds. Um, but what, what mattered most was, and I had to calculate this for the book, but mm-hmm. I ran over 600 miles to be able to do 26.2. Wow. Right. So it's the little steps. It's showing up for yourself mm-hmm. the way you'll show up for everybody else. Cause mm-hmm. this is a big deal. I think that uh, for years I didn't show up for me. I still struggle to do it. Mm-hmm. I'll show for everybody else I've made a commitment to. If I made a commitment to me, like my workouts, yeah, I'll just, you know, I'll catch up later. Right. You know, and uh, I read in a book once where they said, if, if your friend canceled on you constantly, like you cancel on yourself, would they still be your friend? Mm. No, Good. You, yeah. You, you cut them off, right? <laughs> so That's a great way to frame that. Oh, my yes, gosh. <laughs> isn't that such a good, right? So it was for that marathon. And that in my triathlons, and I did dozens of halves and all these races, the work of those incremental steps mm-hmm. is what is going to get you there. So 100%. when you're focused on that big thing, I always failed when I didn't have a plan. And I mean a, you know, really small incremental plan mm-hmm. to get to the big thing. I never made it. Yeah. So just t- taking that step back, figuring out what those little things are. You can get there. That's that's awesome. And it's really a one brick at a time sort of mm-hmm. approach uh, because it's not bad to have lofty goals. I think it's important to have big milestones that you want to achieve, but you have to be realistic about it and understand that there are little lily pads along the way in order to, to get there safely and realistically. Um, and I think the growth trajectory is easier to follow when you recognize that because to not achieve a big goal is in a lot of ways you can feel like a constant failure over and over and over again and that is very defeating very very defeating well you not only have applied a lot of these lessons in your authorship of the book but also in your career with the FAA and I would like to talk to you a little bit more about that because it sounds like that's been a major part of your life and um, you're you know in an executive position at this point in your career but also had sort of a mentor who maybe you didn't jive with so well initially I'd like to get into that with you I sure did uh, and it's funny because that was never I never had a plan to be an executive didn't want to be because I saw them getting moved all over the place all right the time. like I'm good you know but I just this was not a dream I had for myself mm-hmm. but I'm so grateful that others did yeah I uh, I ended up 
um, in a job working for someone who I had grown to dislike simply because he would not speak to me in the hallway. <laughs> and he knows this very well. He's going to crack up when he hears it. But uh, his name is Dan Smiley. And Dan was just, he's just not necessarily the most friendly person. What a name. When he doesn't know you. What I know Dan Smiley, have, yeah. right? Right. He wasn't smiling ever. And I'd see him. I'd walk down the hall. I didn't know who he was at the time, but I'd smile and say good morning. And he would just nod his head. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Did I said something to you. Why don't you say something back? And for those listeners who might not know, this is like a thing in the black community. <laughs> it is like the ultimate disrespect. If we speak and you don't respond, oh my God, it's a situation. This was a trend on social media for a while. Oh, was it really? People passing each other in the, mm, mm, <laughs> you know, just closed mouth kind of thing. And oh. just like you could, you could, that was the theme though. It was like okay. the disrespect originating yes. from that. So I, I could. Just, I could oh, yeah. we take it way too seriously. But, but so, so when I found out about a job opportunity mm-hmm. that I was super excited about, Somebody said, oh, go see this guy, Dan Smiling, interview with him. And you were already in the FAA? I was. I was already in the FAA, but I wanted, I had been in, um, at least at that time, I'd been in more administrative Mm -hmm. business focused roles, and I wanted to be in a more operational role, Mm -hmm. um, working on the national airspace system, inner workings in some way, be more directly impacting it. And Dan was responsible for national traffic management. That was his job. So he was the deputy vice president. So when I got into that that suite of the office and I'm walking and I see him, I was like, oh, my God, I can't work for this man. Oh, my God. guy I've passed in the hallway all these times. (sighs) Right. Let me get in here and just get this thing over with. I go in to interview and Dan... Some some of my colleagues had said some very kind things about me. Yeah. He said, look, I've heard great things about you. Um, you know, we can do a detail. You can come over and we can see if this is something that works out for both of us. But I hear you're the person I need. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, hmm, thinking, what they tell you? <laughs> and it was actually, interestingly enough, it was a demotion for me. Mm. Um, I didn't care because... the pay impact was minimal mm-hmm. and it was experience that I needed that I knew would broaden my career. Yep. And quite frankly, this is part of why I'm an executive today. My boss seeks out people who have a diversity of experience, mm-hmm. different types of organizations and work. And so I went to work for Dan and you know, he, he would give me work to do and I was scared to do it. So, for example, I'm in this job basically as an advisor to an executive. Mm -hmm. And he would have me go to his executives that work for him and and give them some work to do or ask them for information. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't go to them. I'd go to their advisors. Uh. And he found out. (laughs) He was like, um... I'm pretty sure I asked you to go to the directors. <laughs> what's what's the problem? I was like, well, I don't want to bother them. Blah blah blah. He said, okay, let me, let's let's get this clear. You represent me. Mm-hmm. You can talk to anybody in this organization. It is coming from me. Mm-hmm. If I asked you to do that, you do it. Okay, got it. And he liked, you know, what I came up with. I ended up doing it. Followed through. The work products were great. And then I'll just tell this quick story. He. Um, Dan would say he saw something in me. Mm -hmm. He was a controller. 
air traffic controller. I was not. So me and him together was really a great compliment because I had the non-operational expertise. He had the operational. Mm -hmm. It was a really great combination. Um, So he took me to this meeting with all of the CEOs and COOs of the top nine, 10 airlines. I'm sitting in that meeting scared to death, like, oh my gosh, only woman in the room. Mm -hmm. And there was one man of color in the room. And uh, when Dan introduced me, he said, this is Tash. She's my senior advisor. Anything you need, you can call her. Yeah. What? Don't tell them to call me. I don't know (laughs) anything, you know. But he, he, then we went on a lunch break and he said, what'd you think about the meeting? I was like, oh, it's great. I'm learning a lot. Very informative. He said, I didn't bring you here to sit quietly. You haven't said anything. Mm. I was like, um, <laughs> I don't really know what to say. He's like, no, you have ideas. Mm-hmm. You know, there's things you're hearing and you want to throw I need you to participate. You're here to participate. Yeah. So empowering. So empowering. Yeah. And what a way, a great way to say it too. Mm-hmm. He's really saying the platform's here. Take it's it. It's here. Right. So yeah. that was for me in my FAA career the start of me fully leaning in to just be who I was. Mm-hmm. And, and suddenly I realized what I had to offer, even mm-hmm. though I was not a technical person, yeah, it was still valuable. And so that is, that has been the, the um, sort of the thing that kind of kicked off my career to a different level because of Dan. And do you still have interactions with Dan or is he still there? Or what he is retired. that relationship like? He retired a few years ago. Mm-hmm. He became the vice president after he was the deputy. Mm-hmm. And when I became a vice president of a different organization recently, of course I heard from him. And he's like, oh my God, finally you're vice president. You know, because mm-hmm. in his mind, I was ready like years ago. Yeah. Um, but this was kind of what he had hoped for me. Um, so he's thrilled and he's still an amazing advocate. And, and the other thing that's great is Dan is a friend. Mm-hmm. We could not be more politically opposite yeah. <laughs> on everything. Yeah. But because we developed a friendship mm-hmm. over time, we would sit down and talk right. about the things that we totally disagree just to understand each other's perspective. Yeah. It's so important. It was so refreshing. Not to enough just people talk. do that. Yeah, just talk. You yeah. know, you agree to disagree, but just talk and try to understand. Mm-hmm. Um, and I value that about him too. Very much so. And that's a good anecdote for anybody listening because I think the political stratification in our country today is is terrible. It is really bad. And uh, <sighs> it's it's uh, it's weird for me because it you know you really look at it. Everybody kind of wants the same thing, right? But the way that your uh, outlet spends it and the way my outlet spends it. It makes us feel like we're mortal enemies somehow. Exactly. Um, so I, I, I think that's a great piece for anybody listening who, you know, maybe has some differences with somebody in their lives. Simple conversation and getting to know one another can do a lot. I totally agree. Yeah. Totally. Well, as you've navigated this piece of your career and found yourself toward the upper echelon now, you mentioned also during our initial call that there's a women's executive organization that you are a part of, and that has opened doors, but also allowed you to interact with other people that you share a lot in common with. And I'd love to hear more about your experiences within that organization. Oh, absolutely. Yes. So this organization is called Chief Mm -hmm. and it's a a, a national women's networking organization that actually my cousin introduced me to. Mm -hmm. My cousin, who is phenomenal, Jasmine, um, younger, much younger than me. (laughs) 
um, but very accomplished. Mm -hmm. And I saw she had joined the organization. I started researching. I'm like, this is fantastic. It's for C-suite level executives. Um, Some high-powered ladies in there. Yeah, you know, it's like, oh, my gosh. And so uh, as a deputy vice president, that was close enough Mm -hmm. (laughs) for me as an executive in the government. That's when I, I joined when I was the deputy. Yeah. And just being, quote, unquote, in the room with the women who are running the Fortune 100 um, across the country and uh, all of the small business owners and everything in between. Right. Phenomenal experience because it's all about lifting one another up. Yeah. Everyone just jumps in to support, to help. Mm -hmm. There's no, it's not competitive. It's like, what do you need? Here you go. I got it. How about this? I mean, it has just been a phenomenal support system. Um, even in our smaller, we have smaller core groups mm-hmm. as well, where we really get to know folks one-on-one. It's about 10 to 12 women share very private um, challenges and help and support each other through them. Yeah, You know, it has just been amazing. I, you know, I had to pay out of my own pocket to, mm-hmm. to join. Um, and it is a, um, an annual commitment um, worth every cent. Um, because I also found a group of chiefs who were writing that were writing books. And that's, that's awesome. how I found my book program. Yeah. yeah. I've been talking about writing a book for 10 <laughs> years, John, 10 years and never got it done. And I realized this program by book creators, mm-hmm. um, is fantastic called modern author program. It, um, it's all about writing as a group. Mm-hmm. The motto is never write alone, which is me. All day. I need yeah. help. I need accountability. I need somebody. It's got to gotta be motivational mm-hmm. to be with that, that group. Totally. Yeah. So that's what got me through. Like, mm-hmm. and I would meet with some of the folks in the program, other chiefs that are writing right now. In fact, um, Thursday, we're doing a, um, a presentation to all the chiefs about the books that we're writing and in the process of writing the books and what we learned and what mm-hmm. we can, you know, offer as some advice for those who want to pursue it. So yeah. it's been fantastic. Well, speaking of lessons learned writing books, I've, I've had the opportunity to speak to some other individuals who had authored before, and it's it's a challenge. I mean, there are some setbacks that are involved there. I think once you get toward the publishing end of things, that can get dicey with edits and re-edits. So what are some of the things that you've encountered as you've gotten closer to this first publication? So for me, I have taken the route of hybrid publishing it's called which you're it's not self-published you're not going with the traditional publishers mm-hmm. like right in the middle so you have a great deal mm-hmm. of autonomy and nice. accountability to get things done i own all of my work but i also have a fantastic support system mm-hmm. um and for me i've just gone into this thing kind of like i'm not the expert here so i'm gonna lean on the people yeah, who are you should whatever absolutely. it is that you know when my editor calls and says this is mm-hmm. not making sense to me which you yeah. you know i'm like okay <laughs> let me fix it you know there's very little that i push back on mm-hmm. um because i defer to those you know who yeah. know better than me right and so i love it so but the way my program works is you know i will um do pre-sales mm-hmm. And start selling actually soon my book. Nice. And as it's going through the final editing process and so forth and uh, start all the marketing. And um, I have a whole team of people supporting me every step of the way. So it hasn't been 
challenging um, other than needing to show up. Right. And the two things I love that they've done, one, they gave us this phenomenal structure. Like you, if you fail, it's because you decide not to do the work. <laughs> they give you every possible tool, including, and this is why I want to point out quickly, the um, mental health is very important to me and recognizing the emotions associated with these big challenges mm-hmm. or goals that we take on is critical. Yes, ma'am. They even walk us through that. You know, how to, they have us pre-planned for what we're going to do when we decide to quit writing, <laughs> basically. Wow. And really who are you going to call? Like, it. we had to document who we were going to call, oh, you know, wow. what we needed from them, you know, everything. Um, mm-hmm. So you're prepared. You're just fully prepared. So it was really awesome. That is fantastic. And probably things that most people who are starting off on their journey of writing don't even consider. Mm-hmm. And so to, to know what those roadblocks are ahead of time before you really dive in, that's got to be a big leg up, a big right. leg up. Yeah, because when it started happening, I was like, oh, they told me <laughs> I was going to feel this way. Ah, this was coming. <laughs> okay, I know what to do. <laughs> yeah. Well, with this uh, sort of release approaching in September, you, you are in the thick of your career, or would you say maybe end of your career with the FAA? I don't know if you want to label I, it, but. Closer to, because I'll say what, what my, my boss told me when I got the vice president job, he mm-hmm. was like, um, okay, well, you know, what are you doing to start grooming, um, you know, the future of the organization? Right. Sorry, Tash, you're not the future anymore. You, you up here. So <laughs> I was like, what? you can retire before me you know (laughs) but yes so um certainly on the latter end yeah well what's next for you then if you had to look forward is there another book down the line that you feel like you'd want to approach or how do you sort of navigate the end of that chapter of your Mm -hmm. life I absolutely will write another book because I going through this process. I had to keep stopping myself with some content. I'm like, this doesn't belong in this one. I got it as a book too. So I will definitely do that. But John, I love, um, I love talking to folks. I love going out and speaking to audiences that Mm -hmm. can benefit from some experience I've had. That I believe is um, my responsibility. I have, Um, This section in the book where I talk about um, we were created in a unique way for a purpose. Mm -hmm. It's not by accident. And so when we show up authentically, Mm -hmm. then we're leaning into that and we're here serving our purpose and making our mark. Yeah. Right. And all these years, there's a lot of years where I spent holding back and hiding Mm -hmm. who I really was Um, now that I'm comfortable being me, that I love me and all my faults. Mm-hmm. Um, now I'm ready to share what I've learned with others because I want to help other people grow yeah. and be happy. I am so joyful. Um, and that is not to say life is perfect mm-hmm. at all. There's always things that are wrong. It doesn't mean I can't focus on the things that are right and just come up with plans, things I want to do to have some incremental progress on the things that aren't so great. Um, but I, I just feel overwhelmingly blessed and grateful and I want everybody to feel that way. And you can choose to, that's the point, right? You have a choice. I was talking to someone at an event here, um, not too long ago. And she was talking about how she's a seasoned nurse, Mm -hmm. 
um, but she can't show up as she wants to. She's yeah. a black woman and she wants to wear braids to work. She said she can't. Mm. She's, she's like, I just can't do it. It's not accepted. I said, well, if it's not you as the most seasoned nurse. Yeah, really? That who can do it? it. Who's going to ever do it? Yeah. You're making a choice. Are you really going to get fired for showing up and braids? She's like, well, no, but they're going to react. But you're making a choice. You know, think about how you can have a conversation with the right people, mm -hmm. you know, what that looks like. But you can do this if it's important enough to right. you. Well, I love that. I think that uh, authenticity and self-authenticity is so, so important. And it's definitely something I've struggled with as a creative, trying to find my own style mm -hmm. and my own work and being okay with stumbling along the way as you discover that and uh, being okay with putting out content or a specific style of photography or video methodology that maybe is a little untraditional. Uh, you know, I've, I've watched so much to learn what I know now in this field that in so many ways it sometimes can begin to feel like you're just duplicating the process that's out there. And uh, that authenticity element is so, so key to really becoming who you are. Yes. And so I feel like a lot of people out there, and I hope that a lot of people out there listening, will that will resonate with them. But with the wealth of self, um, you have imparted so much wealth to the listeners and viewers out there with this episode. And I just want to say thank you so much, truly, truly, because, um, you know, a lot of the points you hit on, too, were very actionable, which I appreciate. Good. And I think people, if they choose, like you said, it's a choice. If they choose to take that action, take that step, they have some pieces in here that they can really use to, to change their trajectory or change their lives. Um, but as is the, the nature of the wealth of self as a final question, um, looking back at your life and your accomplishments and understanding the lessons that you've gathered up to this point, what does true wealth mean to you? It took me a long time to, to figure that out. Uh, I was very much focused on wealth from a financial perspective mm -hmm. for, for years um, and eventually learned that it's not about money at all. I believe that wealth comes from the inside and it comes from uh, the, this feeling of abundance uh, related to all of the amazing things that we have. Um, and I'm not just talking about tangible things. I'm talking about relationships. Right. I'm talking about the sunshine on your face in the morning. Um, I'm talking about those moments when you make somebody smile. You know, um, when you get an unexpected card in the mail, you know, That's or it's just right. It's like <laughs> so amazing. Right. And and, and that, to me, is wealth. I feel incredibly wealthy mm -hmm. because I have amazing people. I remember thinking of um, someone in the family was sick and had um, extended family and really had no one to care for them, and they needed help. Somebody went, um, but can you imagine not having people that, that would just come? Yeah. And so my husband and I sat and talked about it. We're like, hmm. Who would come help us? <laughs> we had a whole list of folk. Yeah, John. that's good. <laughs> we had a whole list of folk who we knew without question would show up. That's wealth. That is wealth. That's beautiful. I love that. And I think for those out there, that's something to strive for. 
to be able to ask yourself who would show up and make that list and know that those are the people who care deeply about you, love you deeply, think about you maybe whenever you don't even realize it. Um, and that's a beautiful, a beautiful message. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. But this has been phenomenal. This has got to be one of my favorite Thank conversations you. up to this point. This is fantastic. And I'm just so happy that you, um, you know, were able to come in here, be vulnerable and share your story. Uh, because at the, the the other root of the wealth of self is to share authentic stories from real people. Yeah. Um, you know, I think so much of what we see online is celebrity and political and, and uh, these individuals who have just an abundance of coverage of their lives and their stories mm -hmm. already. And I want this to be a documentary effort. Um, for everyday voices to make an impact in the world. And I think that you have done that today. Oh, so. well, thank you. Thank you. It is an honor for me. I'm humbled to be able to share. Uh, and I am so blessed to know that you're doing this work thank because you. I know that so many people will be touched. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks for joining me today. You're welcome. Thanks, John. Thanks for tuning in to the Wealth of Self podcast. The audio-only version of these stories can be found on nearly every major podcast streaming platform from Spotify to Apple Podcasts and many, many more. Your support as we grow this movement is immensely appreciated. You can help us out by leaving a rating, writing a short review, or even sharing it with a friend or a loved one who you feel would benefit from hearing these stories. Finally, if you're interested in seeing the video interview that accompanies these stories, head over to our YouTube channel or our Facebook page for the full viewing experience. While you're there, don't forget to leave a like, subscribe, or follow the channel, and share your thoughts in the comments section. For additional information on how to support the Wealth of Self, head over to www.wealthofself.com. Thank you so much for your viewership. We'll see you on the next one.